Hello, everybody, and welcome. I'm your host, Joe Karen. And I'm Chloe Holzinger. Today, we're sitting down with someone we're very excited to hear from. Um, Sarah, if you could go ahead and introduce yourself um, and your role in the company. Absolutely. Hello, everybody. I'm Sarah Haig. I'm a co-founder and COO of Silverside Detectors. Uh, Silverside Detectors makes nuclear bomb detectors. Um, and that tech, that's the cocktail party version because it gets people to be like, what? <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> uh, but generally speaking, neutron detectors and then systems that incorporate neutron detectors with other radiation sensors. Question. So what is the problem that you guys are trying to solve? Um, we are trying to reduce the threat of a nuclear terrorist event. We're trying to say, hey, if some bad actor has a radioisotope, so they go into a hospital and steal a cobalt-60 that's used for blood sterilization, or they steal a bit of iodine that's used for um, thyroid treatment, stuff like that, and they pack that into a pressure cooker that's a conventional bomb, and then they go detonate that somewhere. They're irradiating an area with lots of nasty stuff that will take a lot of money to clean up and scare a lot of people and just kind of be a economic destruction, a tool of economic destruction. Um, we're trying to prevent that. We're also trying to prevent the um, nuclear version of that. So when you take plutonium or highly enriched uranium, which are the Hiroshima, Nagasaki, super, super bad detonations, um, if somebody were able to get their hands on that and make a pretty hacky, improvised nuclear device, um, something that even fizzles out, that the whole thing doesn't um, detonate, that could take out a city block um, and cause a lot of damage and a lot of casualty. Four years ago, when we were just starting out, we kind of did have to say, you know, there's a lot of plutonium that was left over from nuclear um, testing that the Soviet Union did. You can go into Kazakhstan, and if you know where to go, you can dig around and harvest some plutonium. If you're lucky, you won't die, right? Um, now, four years later, given what's happening on the Korea Peninsula, given what's happening in the Middle East, given the so-called peaceful proliferation that's happening, people, uh, nobody asks me, wait a second, is this a threat? <laughs> Everybody, Everybody's just like... Thank God. <laughs> and it's, it's funny. Nobody really wants us to fail. It's a really nice place to be. That's excellent. Um, so your mission is to detect the presence of materials that could be used in nuclear weapons. So tell us about the... Very good. Very, that's a really good summation. Not everybody gets that. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, what's the science that enables this? How are you able to do this? What's the tech? Ah, let's dig into neutron detection. Cool. Because my co-founder, Andrew Inglis, is a physicist, and this was a technology that he developed at Boston University that um, he and I joined up to launch. Um, neutrons. This is, if you remember your eighth grade science, <laughs> that's one of the uh, particles in the center, in the atom of a, um, in, sorry, in the nucleus of an atom. Um, an unstable um, material is going to emit neutrons. Neutrons, when they are flying out, they will penetrate through anything. Like the radiation cocktails that come out of bad materials, um, neutrons are specific to plutonium and in certain circumstances, a highly enriched uranium. So we detect neutrons. And the way we do this is we have a material, lithium metal actually, a neutron will come into our detector, hit the lithium, that will cause a reaction and we can read the reactions. Um, you can't actually detect a neutron by capturing it and saying, hello, neutron. You have to read the, um, the impact of what the neutron does. 
Um, so this was our technology. We actually, um, the premise of this was invented in the 70s and all the, it's a, been a well-known um, solution for neutron detection in the field for decades, um, but nobody was able to manufacture it. Oh. Um, and so the what we did um, was figure out how do you make neutron detectors that are highly efficient, you can get a really, really large surface area for a super low cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and you want big detectors if you want to f- measure stuff from far away. Um, if you imagine a tennis ball, and that tennis ball is emitting stuff in all directions, um, if you're close to the tennis ball, you're going to get a lot of those particles that are it's snowing today, snowflakes that are coming off that tennis mm-hmm. ball. If you're close, you'll get a lot of them. The further away you go from the tennis ball, the more those snowflakes are kind of spread out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you want to be able to detect radiation from a car, say, that's going down the highway, and that car is one or two lanes away, you need a really, really big surface area in order to even capture some of that radiation coming off the vehicle. Cool. So this idea has been around, but no one knew how to manufacture it in mm-hmm. such a way that it would be cost effective yeah. to implement mm-hmm. this type of technology. Yeah. Can you give us some specific use cases where you're hoping to that this imp- technology can be imp- implemented? Um, we put these in trailers by the side of a highway um, that goes to a, some critical infrastructure that a partner um, wants us to be testing us at. We have a little trailer that's urban and visible. You would never notice this thing by the side of the road because they're ubiquitous in a sense. Um, and there you have our neutron detector. You have a gamma ray detector that's looking for other types of bad radiation. You have a camera so that if, um, if either of the detectors is uh, signals, then you pull some camera information. Um, so yeah, we're looking at vehicles that are going into some critical infrastructure. Um, we've also put these in, in other form factors that you strap to a light post somewhere. Um, and you're figuring out how do you put these out in places where somebody wants to know that there may or may not be radiation coming in. Totally. Covert operations. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Can you... So this idea was developed at BEU, you said? Mm-hmm. What's this, the journey of this technology been from kind of its inception at BU to where you guys are yeah. today in terms of commercialization? It's been lightning fast. Really? Yeah, this is a thing I Four think that we're, really short. we're yeah. most proud of. Um, you just have to kind of find the leprechaun who's going to take you over the rainbow if you're going <laughs> to succeed in, as a startup in general and especially um, as a defense-oriented technology that's hardware that really has only a government market. Um, VCs are not just are not falling all over you for that. Yeah. <laughs> So DARPA was trying to figure out how do you make sensors super low cost so you can have orders of magnitude more of them so you can network them around large areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we got into that program just by chance when Silverside was the two of us. We got our first, yeah, it was our first million dollar contract from the government. Wow. Um, and that was that was just a moonshot on their part. Like when I think back about what they were doing, we were like, good job taking a risk, dudes. <laughs> like, <laughs> seriously. Um, but... That allowed us to go from TRL-4 to just this breakneck cycle of design, prototype, test, design, prototype, test, design, prototype, test. Um, And within two years, we're delivering kind of workable TRL-6 prototypes. And then now we're in field testing with them Um, and commercialization moving into sales. That's excellent. Yeah. Very cool. So my last question for my intro and tech portion here is just to learn a little bit more about your personal journey as an entrepreneur. Um, did you always consider yourself entrepreneurial? What was it like meeting your co-founder? Um, how, how did you decide that this is something you wanted to pursue with such a passion? It's funny, if you, can I uh, adapt Shakespeare? Some are born entrepreneurs, some a tree of entrepreneurship, and some have entrepreneurship <laughs> thrust upon them. I think I'm kind of in that third category. <laughs> 
um, what's what's my journey? So I've always loved being part of something small and seeing it be established. Um, that's just a, an environment I've continually found myself in from you know, groups in college, hey, there's a big group over there, I'm going to go join a small group and see if I can be part of making it, um, giving it traction. But I never, ever foresaw myself starting a company. Um, I was introduced by a mutual friend to Andrew. He was trying to set us up, actually. And I like to joke that we skipped the relationship and had a child. We, we started the company. Um, but... I mean, at the core, I'm an opportunist. When I met Andrew and heard about radiation detection, which was not anywhere in my field of view, um, I was able to identify number. The most important thing was here's a person I would like to team up with. Here's mm -hmm. a person yep. that we have, a, we we share an agenda in this particular space. Um, let's go. Um, we also share pretty much no um, qualifications or skills, and that um, creates tension in the first year of a startup, a lot of it. Um, but then once you get past that, creates such a um, resilient founding team. When I met Andrew, I was like, well, I don't know anything about neutron detection, but I know a fair amount about the general um, nuclear security space, and I've run small businesses before, so let's give it a try. That's great. So I know... Security is really your bread and butter, but aren't there are there other applications of the technology as well? Are you also working with nuclear power plants and yeah, so how are we clean tech? <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> yeah, no, I um, I have two answers for that. the The true answer that my electrical engineer came up with one time, he was like, "Sarah, nothing's dirtier than a nuclear explosion." <laughs> I was like, oh, done. <laughs> um, but yes, there are um, great applications for neutron detection fundamentally in um, advanced nuclear reactors in the next generation um, nuclear power. And I don't want to get into whether nuclear is clean because <laughs> everybody has a different take on that. Um, but when you can understand, when you can afford to have massive quantities of detection capability that can give you much better insight into the, the neutrons and the reactions coming out of your power plant, that's all, that's all I will say because that's getting way over my head. Mm -hmm. um, but then you also need to understand, um, you know, where's spent fuel going? What's happening to um, legitimate radioisotypes when they're in transit? Um, there's always a safety and security application around any sort of energy application for the material that can be used for bad stuff. Yeah, so you've got this focus now on the opportunity in front of you, in part because of the fund where your funding is coming from. But yeah, but the more we're doing for um, the market we're we're chasing right now, the more you also figure out how can I um, untether my particular designs um, from this end application. How do I make this detector modular? How do I make these systems mm. really um, transferable or applicable to other places? Um, or how do I, you know, when you're a startup, you're talking to everybody and you have to talk to somebody who's saying, can you do this? And you're like, yes, yes, we can do that. Um, how, and when you start answering questions and you're articulating um, what it would take to apply a technology developed from one space to another, it starts you thinking on, wait a second, you know, how we may design um, choices that are limiting our, our breadth or are we making design choices that allow us to hopscotch around to different markets? Yeah, that's an interesting thing to be thinking of. There's so many things you have to think when you're developing a project, a product. I think a big one that we've been thinking a lot about in this space is designing a project in the a product in the early stage that will make manufacturing 
simple down the road, right? That's key. Right. That is so key. Everybody makes something and then it's like, all right, once we make this and it works, then we'll do the cost engineering. Um, one thing that Silverside did from day negative five was <laughs> design for manufacture. Our first hire was a manufacturing engineer, um, who, you know, mechanical engineer. He could do CAD design and all. But he would look at how could this thing be assembled? How could this be made? And we limited choices of parts, of materials, of designs mm -hmm. based on can this be affordable in, in manufacturing? And that sounds like way too much when you don't even have a working prototype. But let me tell you, it allows you to just leapfrog stages later on and crush competition. Um, it's amazing. The other thing that we've been figuring out is the more you think about manufacturing early on, um, Potentially, you can design to be um, profitable in lower volumes of manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And we designed not for the large volumes that, you know, we hope happen one day, but we designed for volumes that are actually reflective of the market space today. Interesting. Um, and then also designing for, this is how we do it now, and here are the next five steps of how we automate, how we expand, how we improve on these jigs and these procedures. Um, yeah, manufacturing from day zero in your the CEO and CTO's mind will do nothing but help a company. Definitely. I love that, you know, and I think to stress for some of our listeners who might be working in a, a hardware space is incorporating a lot of those things that you mentioned as soon as possible, like scalability of this product from a manufacturing standpoint, the adaptability of the product to different markets. The more you can incorporate that early on, the easier it is because you mm -hmm. don't want to lock yourself into a particular design and then find out down the road that you've come too far with this, mm -hmm. these design choices you've made that you can't undo easily. Yeah. And obviously those are things, important things to remember for any market, but I think it's a particularly easy trap to fall into when you're receiving DOD funding <laughs> is the Why's U.S. That? Well, because the U.S. Defense Department or Department of Defense is so huge and they give so much money that it's, it's very easy to just make a defense-oriented product and have that be it, like regardless of what your industry is. Um, yeah, I think the way we thought about that, having been almost exclusively funded by Department of Homeland Security, Department of Defense, was what are they asking for? How do we definitely fulfill our contracts, you know, and go over so they want to give us more? So we're but then there's also a sense of, is this excellent for the product itself? Um, if I take this away from the context of um, that particular, you know, military attack vehicle battery needs, if it's going to be in a rock or, you know, whatever, um, is this an excellent product. How do we, you know, we, for example, um, started down the line of designing these large area neutron detectors. So we wanted the large area. So we made them a meter by a meter squared, which is what we needed to hit some specifications. Massive, you know, 300 pound chunk of metal and plastic that everybody who looked at it was like, great, how is anybody going to use that? That's a two person lift. There's no, like, wh what do you do with that? Um, without um, any input from the DOD um, really, one of our manufacturing engineers was like, this is completely inviolable. We need to make this modular. We need to make this in kind of six pieces that we can then assemble together into a, a modular version. Um, and there had been, you know, hints from DOD to do that, but really not the money behind the hints, which is how you tell how they tell you that <laughs> they're serious. Um, and there's obviously more nuance to that story, but um, we went forward on what somebody said was excellence in product design. And that actually ended up 
being, hey, the customer didn't know they wanted that, but once they saw that, that was a huge advantage for us. Mm-hmm. So you've referenced a couple times who, uh, that you're doing well compared to competitors. Who are you actually competing against here? <laughs> There's a... <laughs> Deep, deep, deep story on this one. Um, I will, I will see if I can summarize this. Um, we're competing first against the incumbent neutron detectors that are out in the field right now. Um, those incumbent neutron detectors are, we'll, we'll name them Bob. No, I'm just kidding. Um, they're they're helium three, so that's an isotope of helium gas, um, and helium three is the gold standard for neutron detection. It's amazing. It's the most efficient thing in the world to capture a neutron, send out a signal, and say, hey, neutron over here. Um, problem is, new- helium three is not naturally occurring on Earth. Um, it's a byproduct of tritium decay. So when the U.S. nuclear arsenal was large and they were servicing it out at Oak Ridge, they would vacuum off all this um, gas, helium-3 gas, from the the, the cores of these, um, were they... Uh, hydrogen bombs, maybe even. I don't remember. Um, so there's a vast stockpile of helium-3. And this was used by physicists that were playing around with helium-3 and doing neutron detection. Then all of a sudden, September 11, 2001, um, the first thought in everybody's mind, or the second thought, I should say, was what would happen if this were some sort of nuclear device? Um, the, the nuclear 9-11, so to speak, became a very living concern um, in Congress and DOD and everywhere else. So they pretty much instantly um, stood up radiation detectors um, at all the border crossings in Canada and Mexico, and then put up as many um, radiation detectors as they could in in ports, because the the thought was, if somebody were trying to smuggle a nuclear device into the U.S., it would come in a shipping container. It would that'd be the easiest way to get it in. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of the helium three that was available basically depleted by putting out all of these detectors at ports and borders. Um, so since 2006 or seven, you've seen minimal increase in our um, resilience to these kinds of threats coming in um, because there's no more helium three. So we came in to say, can we have an alternative to helium three that performs as well for neutron detection, um, but is an order of magnitude less expensive? And that's what we did. So the first, um, so that's the incumbent that we're competing against. To be honest, like unless and until there's some sort of event, whether you know somebody's caught smuggling radioactive material somewhere or something worse happens, um, this is not a huge market. Um, and so the other reason why there isn't a ton of competition is because um, this isn't, there's not enough money to be made here for all the big boys to roll in. It's a neat place to be, to be kind of at the, the, the front bird and the flock, you know. Um, and that's not where we'll always be, but um, it's a neat place to be because we get to figure out, wait a second, what's the best way to do this? Not, um, oh, crap, how do we come up with that feature to beat them or stay ahead of the, the tide that's coming behind us. Yeah. Very cool. Does being funded by the U.S. government for a security project like this mean that you can't supply, you can't pursue other international markets? Uh, no, actually. So for us, we're not under ITAR, I-T-A-R, the acronym that refers to the Department of State um, limitations of where you can sell stuff. Um, if we were a weapon system, it would be a lot harder because we are in this kind of defense more of a homeland security or defense space, um, there's a lot more flexibility with it. Um, there are still regulations we have to make sure of, and we can't sell the stuff to certain places that are fairly obvious. <laughs> um, but 
Let me tell you, being a startup in the government world is just mind-blowingly difficult. Yeah. Um, I had a question. We were shipping a chamber, just a, like a, a test unit, basically, to a partner company in Canada. And so we were looking into, we have lithium, enriched lithium in our detector. Enriched lithium can be used for some components of nuclear weapons if it's processed in a particular way. Um, so we learned that that was on an export control list, which is not governed by the Department of State and ITAR. Export control is governed by the um, Department of Commerce. And so I'm reading through just reams of small print to figure out, can we ship this thing to Canada? What does it take? And get more questions than answers. Um, and then so plug for incubators. <laughs> we were at Greentown Labs. The Secretary of Commerce at the time, Penny Pritzker, happens to be coming through um, Greentown Labs. <laughs> and because I have my, you know, more political background, um, I was always able to get on the panels or get into the conversations with the political people coming through. Um, so during, I was one of a few speakers on a panel, and during a Q&A with her, I was like, you need to help startups that are trying to figure out how to think internationally with export control. And she basically turns to her deputy and is like, answer her question. <laughs> so I got the undersecretary of something something on the phone the next day, and he signed somebody to figure out if I could ship my my chamber to Canada. Nice, um, yeah. which we did. It was good. Um, that was that was really fun for me because I was like, oh, I'm in the belly of the beast, and they're all answering to me. Not answering to me. They're answering my question. Um, nobody answers to me except well, a couple of people. But um, <laughs> but um, government funding is a fantastic thing for the right startup if you can align what you want to do with what that program wants to do. You have to be really careful for the misalignments. Um, but if you can find that, and if you're patient, um, you have to go after it. It's fantastic. Um, tons of pitfalls, tons of really hard stories, too. Do you worry that their interest will wander in this these types of technologies? When you're detecting nuclear terrorism threats, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, but there is a um, flavor of the month always. Um, you know, it used to be that nuclear terrorism was number one threat that people were concerned about. Now they're like, Psh, cyber, hello. You know, so um, you do have to be careful about that. And we've always been concerned about, you know, we have great funding now, but what happens when a program manager leaves? What happens mm. when this rides out? The government invests in tons and tons of research and systems that they never procure. Um, so having a, again, Chloe, this is what you were talking about before with your the battery companies you see, having a plan for how am I taking this to market? How am I going to make money not from writing grants and receiving R&D money? How am I going to make a product that I can give to somebody and in response to me giving that, they give me a check? <laughs> like that, <laughs> that transaction, to have a plan to get to that kind of transaction um, is absolutely necessary. And you've brought up cybersecurity a couple times. Um, but one of the problems with a lot of IoT solutions is that they are not at all secure because they're so um, they're so cheap to make, and a lot of a lot of products just end up getting used that um, people don't think like, what if somebody hacks my my sensor that I put in my electrical box, and what are the consequences? of that if that happens. Um, I don't want to press too hard here, but is that something you guys are thinking about and have uh, a rough plan for addressing? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially since we're in the defense space, there are probably more um, regulations around um, communication security and other compliance um, for Aerostiff than for um, baby monitors or something, which there should be a lot of regulations around. <laughs> Can somebody hack your baby monitor, to be honest? Um, we also, some of the companies we partner with are also, you know, leading and giving us a lot of guidance on that. Um, but they... For startups, we we invest where not where there's smoke coming out, but where there's some actually conflagration. <laughs> there's that's what triage is, um, and until there's either a regulatory requirement or a market incentive to invest in the next level of something, um, unless you have a business model where you actually think that security is going to be a differentiator that gets you more market share, people are not going to invest in this. Um, I remember listening to a company that made some sort of, you know, embedded sensor in clothing for kids. Um, and I think I asked her actually about security around this. Um, and she was like, you know, we do the minimum. And until anybody else does more, we're not going to do that. It's expensive. Yeah. Um, I also heard a lawyer yesterday talking about a completely different, <laughs> talking about the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and things related to that, say that there's case law that says regulation, compliance with um Regulations is a floor, not a ceiling. Um, mm -hmm. But that's something that hasn't caught up, and I don't think the product liability insurance um, payouts that we as small companies are making, um, and that I don't think has caught up um, in our development cycles. Um, this is actually a really interesting place for social, corporate social responsibility to come in um, if there's a gap between market and what actually we really should be doing. I wanted to talk a little a bit about building the right team for something like this. Uh -huh. You mentioned how compatible you and your founder were both in terms of ability and vision. How do you build the right team? I'll just put it that way. Oh, gosh. Um, when we're looking to build a team, um, we are defining what we think that person is doing for the first six months. But since our company is always taking on new and unexpected challenges, we also are clear to people, this is what you're working on to start out, but this might morph, this might change. And saying, is this somebody who is eager to be morphing and changing? Or is this somebody who thrives inside of predictability and um, just a more structured environment. And if that's the case, we might not be able to provide the environment in which that person would thrive. Where, what role do you see nuclear power, power playing in an increasingly clean tech powered grid? Do you think that there's been like nuclear ca catastrophes have had so much get huge negative press mm -hmm. that people are just too scared and that those won't happen here? Nuclear is subject to nimbyism wherever you go. That's not in my backyard um, approach. But man, at some point, if you can demonstrate um, and convince in, in a change management like way, get people to say, hey, that's better than having my kids breathe coal smoke. Um, I think it's not about education. People's minds aren't changed. People's hearts or guts are changed or instincts. Um, and kind of stupid analogy. I lived in China for five years, and when I came back, I noticed that everybody was sneezing into their elbows. When I went to China, everybody was, you know, everybody in the U.S., if you had to sneeze, you kind of covered it with your hands. I came back, everybody sneezed into their elbow. And I was like, that's genius, but how did this... <laughs> 
how did this perpetuate? What was the kind of public health campaign? What was it that got an entire population to shift instinctive behavior? Um, I still, somebody's like, I think my kid came home and told me. I think maybe I saw it on TV. Nobody knew. Um, but that's change management. Um, and if we can figure out how to do that kind of gut level, not education, but gut level instinctive change management with regard to the reality of our energy options, that's how you move forward with nuclear. Cool. I have an, as an aside, I have a number of dream jobs. Yeah. And one of them is Teaching managing... Teaching people to sneeze into their elbows? <laughs> no, but managing NOAA's PR department so that NOAA is the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric mm. Administration. Mm -hmm. um, so that people think that oceans are just as cool as space because NASA does a fantastic job of that. Oh, yeah. And how, there's no how, reason that subsea is less cool. But would than you rather space. watch 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or Star Wars? So NASA has Hollywood <laughs> to help them out. Yeah, that's what you need to do is just Maybe make that. a big budget, groundbreaking movie trilogy about the ocean floor. I mean, what are all the movies about the ocean floor like The Abyss? So women are underrepresented as both startup founders mm -hmm. and. I think you could arguably say that they're even more underrepresented in the defense field mm -hmm. and um, international security. So given your current position and uh, your extremely diverse background, <laughs> um, do you have any advice for women pursuing um, either defense-oriented careers or... Uh, founding their own STEM startup. Mm -hmm. um, before advice, I'll give you an anecdote. When I was at the DARPA kickoff conference for our first contract with them, um, during the breaks, it was one of those magical moments where there's no line in the ladies' room and the line in the men's room is going down the hallway. And so I was like, there are some, sometimes I'm like, no ladies, stay out, stay out. Don't come into my field. <laughs> Just kidding. Ladies, please come into the defense field. Um, my advice has been, um, I would say, hard one through um, my mistake. Um, and I would say we're always aware, I will always be aware when I walk into a room of being one of just a few women. Um, the, two weeks ago, I was meeting with this whole bunch of customers, and I was like, man, I'm the only woman in here. Um, the challenge is to not... Um, assume that I'm being judged, to not assume that I have to prove myself, to not assume that I need to let everybody else know that I belong. When my personal agenda has to do with establishing my credibility, then I am kind of at a deep level positioning myself as an adversary to everybody else in the room. This is somebody that I need to prove to, that I need to win over. Um, I, and I learned this from my co-founder, best of all, I think, um, to it doesn't matter. I might be aware that people are wondering about my credentials or wondering what I'm doing there. Um, but if I am comfortable with them potentially looking down on me and just through doing my job and interacting and building rapport and building relationship and building solutions, if that's how I try to win credibility as opposed to positioning this person as somebody that I need to prove myself to, then I actually don't come across as having a chip on my shoulder or anything else. It can be really hard. Um, 
I think I've had more experiences where I felt looked down on or put aside when I was in the startup world in Boston than I did working in Afghanistan. It just was a, a different environment. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I've also learned that at the end of the day, people want relationship and people want to get along. Um, and so it might be a little bit of a slower road to get there um, if you are outside the demographic norm. Um, but the key is to just approach with kind of an open heart um, and then don't take shit from anybody. <laughs> but, yeah. That is excellent advice. Yeah. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining yeah, us thank today. You. Um, and thank you everybody for, for sitting down listening to us. Um, in the show notes, you will find more. You will find a link to Silverside Detector's website. And if you'd like to support the show, please tell a friend, tweet at us, uh, or leave us a five-star review. Um, download the show, subscribe to us on iTunes. I have a challenge. Okay. Because I read on your bio that you have a gift for Limerick. Ah, uh, Sarah. yes. So what we do at the end of every show is um, shamelessly offer to do something silly in exchange for five-star reviews. I think we should have, in honor of your gift of rhyme, uh, we should have a, a poetry slam, like a limerick off um, for every like five-star review we get. We'll come up with a bizarre and interesting limerick about the clean tech space. Maybe we I think as say. long as it's not like... Like freestyle, no, 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 we're not. as long as I, we can prepare well, I, ahead of time. <laughs> I mean, I'm also down for a live poetry slam where I make a fool, <laughs> fool of myself as I try to rhyme off the cuff. Uh, was there anything else for outro? Please sign up for a mailing list on our website, mm-hmm. uh, talkleanpodcast.com, or get in touch with us, email us at contact at talkleanpodcast.com. Thank you all for listening. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Thanks, Sarah. Bye. Thanks. At the, the same DARPA conference, um, I like there was one um, session. It was all about algorithms that I couldn't follow any of it. And so I just sat there pretending to take notes but wrote limericks in my notebook. And then at the end of the session was a Q&A. And the, the program manager said, hey, if you all have any questions, but if you want to submit them anonymously, just write them down and give them to my assistant. So I copied out my limericks on two different pieces of paper and submitted them, just as like so they can take them back to the office and get a little kick out of it them. Yeah. So our program manager goes up front and he goes, well, I have two questions and two poems. <laughs> he goes, I will start with the questions. <laughs> and so he kind of he answers the questions, and he's like, okay. And then he starts, re- he reads both my limericks, one of them which ends with his name in it. <laughs> and then he's just like awkward, then he gets into it a little bit. And at the end, everybody's laughing and applauding, and he just looks up, he goes, whoever wrote these, you missed your calling.